Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is a special series on third world nationalism. In the wake of a rise in nationalism around the world and its general condemnation by liberals and the left, we have put together this series on third world nationalism to nuance the present discourse on nationalism, to note its centrality to anti-imperial, anti-colonial politics around the world and its inextricability from mainstream politics in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Caribbean. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Megu. I also host my own podcasts, Independent Thought and Freedom, and also a story club, Global Politics and Global Cultures. You can find links on my bio page on the NBN website. Today, my guest is Dinya Patel, author of Naoroji, Pioneer of Indian Nationalism, published by Harvard University Press in 2020. Welcome, Dinya. Thank you, Kurt. It's great to be over here. Yes, yes, I'm, I'm really glad to have you. Um, I'm joining you from Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean, and where are you right now? So currently I'm in Mumbai. I, I live and work here uh, along with my wife. Uh, we are hunkered down in our apartment thanks to, to COVID-19, uh, but we're getting by. Oh, great, great. So this is a, a nice um, south-south cooperation or, or interaction here. Absolutely. <laughs> On yeah. NBN, yeah. Although um, it, it's, it's, I hate that term south, you know, because um, uh, both of us are north of the equator. We're in the northern hemisphere. But, uh, you know, the, it, it's, it's, it's kind of this... Um, uh, I, I think that this liberal um, uh, well, kind of uh, unself-reflexivity, they're, they're trying to make a politically correct term, but I think they make it worse because now they, they think of themselves as the equator. <laughs> so they, put, they, they put themselves at the center of the, that they're north and we're south. We're in the northern hemisphere still. so That's true. <laughs> so, I mean, but yes. The whole concept mm-hmm. is quite Eurocentric as it is. Absolutely, absolutely. But, uh, you know, even our, our both of our own histories complicate things because both of us were born in the States as well, weren't we? Right, right. Yes, yes, yes. So so, um, so th- this is kind of a uh, – this, uh, this is an interesting um, personal uh, complication of the story of, of third world nationalism. And your book, uh, Naroji, A Pioneer of Indian Nationalism, I think is very – important uh, within that context to understand third world nationalism. And although you probably should get an interview of your own just for the release of your book on um, either the South Asian channel here, uh, certainly as part of this special series, I, I want to concentrate on, uh, on this in the context of third world nationalism. But before we start, we like to ask the authors, to give a little bit of background, um, you know, to help our listeners understand, and in particular, in relation 
to the subject of your book. So can you please do that for us? Absolutely. So as you mentioned, I was like you were born in the U.S. I was born in Houston. Um, I, I grew up in, um, in California in a, in a relatively small town called Bakersfield, which is north of Los Angeles. Relative, you know, when I was growing up, at least, you know, the, the Indian presence was, was quite small. Now it's become quite big, uh, reflecting the overall diversity of, uh, you know, California. Um, went to college in, you know, in, in Stanford. And then uh, eventually I did my PhD at, at, at Harvard. Um, and, um, you know, at least in, in the PhD program at Harvard, you know, it can take a long time. It, it took me eight years. Uh, a little too long, mm-hmm. uh, but but in your, your, your yes. <laughs> yeah, in, in in your first uh, one or two years, you're you're meant to just think about what you want to do for your for your PhD. Mm-hmm. And I, I had always known that I'd, I'd wanted to do something on the topic of Indian nationalism, um, as well as something to do with uh, the Parsi community. I'm 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 a member of the Parsi community uh, myself. Okay, and uh, you know Parsis for you know for for those listeners who might not know too much about them. Uh, we're a small community of, you know, maybe worldwide 100 to 120,000 uh, who follows Zoroastrianism, uh, the religion of pre-Islamic Iran. And most of us are still in, in India. Uh, the rest of us are kind of distributed around the globe, and there's a population in Iran as well. Uh, and and Pisces played quite a unique role in, in uh, Indian history over the past three or four centuries. I mean, even though we we're quite a small community in, in Bombay, they exerted uh, disproportionate political and economic influence. And, uh, you know, consequently, if you, you go through the southern part of Bombay, the older part of the city, you'll, you'll find many Parsi landmarks. And um, a lot of these landmarks are associated with uh, Parsis who are involved in, in Indian politics during the nationalist movement. And uh, Naroji was probably the, the, the tallest figure uh, out of all these characters. And um, so, I, you know, I kind of gravitated more towards a figure like Naroji. And as I researched more about uh, Parsis and Indian nationalism, I realized how little has been written or researched on uh, such figures. So, I mean, Naroji himself, uh, the last really good biography came out uh, pretty much, you know, 80 years ago in, in 1939. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it had been quite a long time since a good study had been done of him, on him. Uh, and yet most of his papers are, you know, are still accessible uh, very, very lightly looked at by, by academics and scholars. And so uh, he was kind of a perfect fit in, in many ways. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, and so what are the themes that are, you know, running through your book uh, on Naroji, his life? I mean, he's a, an amazingly, amazingly uh, accomplished uh, person that, you know, many people today uh, have no idea about. Absolutely. I mean, that, that was another motivating factor that, you know, in, in India, people recognize his name, uh, but they don't know much about him at all. Um, and abroad, I mean, in the UK, people, you know, are learning more about him. But again, you know, the, the, the narrative, the common narrative that people know about him is one or two lines, you know, the first MP of, of Indian heritage, of Indian heritage to enter the parliament, and that's about it. And so there, there was an obvious in- incentive to kind of flesh out the story. Mm-hmm. So, you, you divide his life into three phases. I, I, th- I think this is uh, important uh, for us to, to, take, to delve into you know, some of the, uh, his accomplishments and, and look at his wider significance. So, uh, so what are these uh, three phases? Sure. So the, the, the phases I've divided Naroji's life into can be basically summarized as, you know, in the, the first phase, uh, Naroji was deeply interested in 
how India had become so poor. I mean, evidence of Indian poverty was was all around him uh, growing up. I mean, he himself grew up in a relatively impoverished family in Bombay, uh, but the poverty that he experienced was nothing in comparison to the the poverty that the vast majority of Indians experienced. I mean, it was was so bad that millions of Indians died from famine uh, when, you know, there were the the slightest tweaks in, in, say, weather patterns or natural disasters. This was a highly abnormal situation. Um, So for the first period of his political career, uh, he set himself out an objective to understand why India was so poor. Um, And he he came up uh, with uh, an analysis which we today call the the drain theory, um, which built upon earlier colonial observations that uh, India was becoming poorer under British rule. Uh, that colonialism was actually draining the wealth out of the country, draining the resources and, and capital out of the country and, and in, enriching Great Britain. Um, and it was upon this principle, you know, the idea of an economic drain, uh, that Naroji, you know, at the, at the end of this first phase of Indian nationalism, came up with this belief that, uh, well, the, the, the only way to stop the drain was to, to uh, achieve some form of self-government. Um, you know, whether it was under limited British ages or, or, or not was a question that would be uh, explored a little later on. Uh, but, you know, toward the end of, the, of this first phase, he had uh, kind of given the germ of what would power the Indian nationalist movement through towards independence uh, that was finally achieved in 1947. So this idea of Indians needing to be in charge of their own government and, and achieving autonomy and, uh, you know, some form of national sovereignty. So that was the first phase. The, the, the second, in the second phase, he tried to apply these principles uh, and specifically, he tried to apply these principles uh, uh, through engaging with politics in Great Britain. I mean, you know, in this era, most Indian nationalists realized that it was very difficult to uh, to achieve any sort of concrete political reform in, in India itself due to the nature of colonial rule. Uh, so Naroji came up with a rather audacious idea of contesting election uh, for the British Parliament, because it was in Parliament where you could actually achieve some sort of change. Uh, you, you could actually legislate uh, on uh, Indian colonial rule. And so he, he tried once, he failed in 1886, tried again in 1892 and, and won, but won by five votes. It was, it was an extremely narrow victory. Um, and he, he spent only only one term in, in, in the House of Commons. Um, it, it was a momentous occasion when, when he uh, uh, was elected because he was you know arguably the first Indian elected to the the House of Commons. A few people had been elected before him who had Indian heritage, uh, but they, they never really identified as, as Indians and identified with India's political aspirations. But he very quickly became uh, disillusioned. Uh, he realized that he could achieve hardly anything uh, in Parliament. And so in the, the third of, and final phase, which occurred for the, the last uh, 10 or 11 years of his uh, political career, when he was in his, his 70s and 80s, uh, was marked by radicalization. When he he really kind of pushed Indian nationalism in a, in a far more radical direction. Uh, he linked it up with, uh, you know, say, socialists in Great Britain, uh, other political actors around the world. He reached out to, you know, a few African-Americans as well. Um, and he promoted this idea of Swaraj, this idea of self-government for India uh, that could or could not necessarily be under some form of, of uh, British ages and uh, what he called, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, paramountcy. Um, and... Uh, the last moment of his political career, you know, ended in a, in a very dramatic fashion. And in 1906, he, he gives the uh, the presidential address of, of the Indian National Congress in Calcutta, uh, and he calls for Swaraj. And, and this is a moment when both radicals and, and, and moderates in the Congress were, were fighting for control of the organization. And 
as I argue in the book, he, he really kind of tilts the balance towards the radicals. Uh, and that sets in train a whole, you know, new trajectory in terms of how Indian nationalism develops in the years just before Gandhi arrives on the scene. Yeah, well, I mean, th- those are, are just absolutely incredible, incredible uh, points upon which, you know, to, to hang your life story. I mean, if, if, if any individual just achieved one of those things, it would be enough. But he has like these three things and, and, um, and, and they're so, uh, you know, early pioneering in terms of, of third world nationalism and, uh, and anti-colonial nationalism, which is really what third world nationalism was. So I, I want to delve in, into uh, these things more. Uh, let's, let's take the, the first um, phase and, uh, around his analysis of poverty uh, and, and the impoverishment of India because, I mean, to, to this day, the debate uh, is there, um, you know, whether British rule was good or not for India. And at that time, at the height of you know, the British Empire, it was basically unquestioned, wasn't it? Um, I mean, were, were there any written precedents to his own analysis? I know later on, you know, like Hobson with his imperialism, the last stage of capitalism, and Nauruji was living at the time that Karl Marx was living as well. Although right. Marx, you know, Marx had a kind of favorable view of 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 imperialism and the wrong view of history. Like he, he may have pointed out some of the atrocities uh, uh, and and whatnot of colonialism, but he believed it was part of you know the spreading of capitalism and then therefore coming of socialism. But uh, so in terms of the the uh, placing the idea of, of this impoverishment of India uh, through by colonialism, uh, so how um, yeah, so how unique was it? What was its its impact? Um, and uh, you know how how did he actually? start to uh, formulate this argument because it, w- it was not just a rhetorical argument. He had a lot of uh, facts and figures. So if you could expand on that for us, that would be great. Yeah, the, the, the idea of the drain theory is, is commonly attributed to Naroji, but it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a misnomer. I mean, you're right in the sense that the dominant narrative in this era, uh, if you were in Great Britain, was that colonialism was good. Un- unquestionably so. I mean, there, there, there was a uh, you know, a, a small minority of people who, who disagreed um, and who brought, you know, some quite salient facts to the disposal, but they were speaking at, at the margins of the debate. Um, in, in India, um, you know, the idea of impoverishment or the drain uh, had, had a different pedigree. I mean, you know, there, there were people at points in time who made observations that, look, we're all getting poorer. The textile industry has broken down. Um, you know, wealth is being funneled out of the country, famines are getting worse. So, I mean, there, there was, you know, anecdotal evidence that things were getting worse. And it, it would be presented through things like songs or poems um, and occasionally through, um, you know, more, more I, I guess, in, in our perspective, at least more concrete uh, forms, newspaper articles. You know, when, when Narochi was growing up in Bombay, there were uh, a few people who were slightly elder to him in the school he attended. Uh, who, you know, as he recalled later in life, formed a secret society. And they um, talked about how British rule had impoverished India. And, uh, you know, they, they did so, in, you know, with language that was quite advanced for that era. So it definitely was being discussed, the idea of colonialism being bad and, you know, terribly bad as well, uh, you know, to the, the, the economy and society in India. Um, 
But it was only really with Naroji that you start to get a kind of sustained formal framework uh, for this idea of being presented uh, specifically in a, in a British audience and in kind of an audience that was not just, you know, Indian, but, you know, something that was reflected uh, around the world. I mean, Naroji's ideas didn't just circulate in London and uh, Manchester and Liverpool. They circulated abroad in continental Europe, America, uh, and of course, in, you know, the areas of the world we now think of as, as you know, the, the third world, the, the, the ex-colonial mm-hmm. world. So they had great resonance. And I think the, the power of that resonance was, again, uh, as you mentioned, they were very empirically sound ideas. I mean, you know, Naroji took, a, a, you know, data. Uh, he uh, contextualized it in such a way that, you know, many of his assertions seemed quite infallible. Uh, it was very difficult for people to, to kind of counteract the ideas that he presented, uh, because oftentimes he, the evidence that he presented was evidence that the British themselves collected, uh, but didn't really want to show to, to the light of day. Right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and he wrote, I mean, this, it wasn't just one book he wrote. He, he wrote, <clears throat> how many books in total did he write? Well, you know, the, the, the primary means by which Naroji uh, wrote or communicated was through long lectures. Um, and at the end of his life, uh, he put together all of these lectures along with the speech, his speeches uh, into one book called uh, Poverty and Unbritish Rule in India. So, I mean, that's, you know, when we think of Naroji in a book, that's the, the definitive book that uh, uh, that comes mm-hmm. to mind. I mean, it, it still is considered a classic in terms of kind of, you know, economic nationalism and anti-colonialism. Uh, but it was made up of uh, speeches and writings that go back, you know, 30 years, 40 years before it was uh, that that particular item was, was published. Uh, so, you know, he was he was kind of, you know, his method again was, um, you know, coming out with newspaper articles, tracts. Uh, relatively long essays, uh, less so, you know, the, you know, the books, um, uh, you know, the, yeah. the other people mm-hmm. were, were, were publishing relatively long tracts, uh, relatively long books, and he in turn, you know, had a different methodology. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, he was an, he was an activist and didn't have time to, to spend writing books like, um, like so many academics. So absolutely. And there are a couple of interesting uh, points I want to elaborate on. I mean, one is, I mean, that argument about, you know, whether colonialism was objectively, you know, materially good or bad, let's put it that way, objectively. I mean, that approach is important. And it's always kind of gone back and forth. To me, in that whole debate, I mean, something I've been involved with my sort of whole scholarly life for the past, I don't know, two, three decades. Um, I think Angus Madison's work in the 2000s with the OECD on uh, global on the statistics of uh, the global economy from 1 AD projected up to 2050. I, I think that was probably one of the most important ones to sort of solidify the argument that, yes, imperialism really, really did do a lot of damage when it showed you know, how India and China were dominant in the global economy from 1 AD right up to the um, right up to the 19th century, the early 19th century, and then it collapsed, and, and you know from being like a quarter of the world economy to you know I can't remember what the figure was offhand, four percent or something like five, yeah, five percent in, in India's case. Five, right? Yeah, a basket case basically, and you know now coming back, but uh, I mean it, it's amazing, and I suppose it's probably. Because he himself um, I'm, he came from a, a, a wealthy community of Parsis that were involved in global trade for 
thousands of years from, from before that. So he probably had, had the sense and, and then the lived experience of the impoverishment, uh, you know, which we can, you know, we can now look back at, um, you know, but but he was actually living through that that massive uh, deindustrialization. Um, so that that is that is one. You know, the the way he he uh, he went about that and, and how he did. I'd like you to expand on. And the other thing too is that the inch, the contrast he made that you point out in your book, which I find fascinating, um, with the princely states in India. So was it that the the right. uh, the the princely states actually did have a, a visibly higher le- uh, sta- standard of living. Um, yeah, if you could expand on those things, I'd really be interested. Sure. So uh, with regards to, you know, his observations of, of poverty in India and, you know, how that was reflective of, of you know, any Parsi observations, I mean, uh, this is the interesting thing about the Parsi community. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's never been in unison about anything. We, 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 we love to fight mm-hmm. uh, and, and mm-hmm. argue. Um, and so, you know, in Naroji's day, when, when he was, uh, you know, putting forth this idea of uh, British rule being economically bad for India, uh, many of his co-religionists, many of his, his fellow Parsis were saying, what are you talking about? Look how fabulously wealthy we, we, we have got under British rule. I mean, you know, we, we at one point in time lived in, in relatively obscure areas in, in coastal Gujarat, and now we're commanding the, you know, the, the, the biggest mansions in Bombay, in the best parts of the city. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, as, as as we know now, that that story is 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 not you know entirely true. I mean, Western Gujarat was was very rich. Um, you know, as as economic historians have pointed out, uh, wealthy communities like the Parsis or the Jains lived there for a reason because they engaged in uh, you know quite quite a bustling trade. The Bora communities, other you know other 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 communities which engaged in, in trade, um, and you know British rule obviously worked very well for certain groups like the Parsis. So these Parsis, most Parsis living in Bombay, but that came at the expense of, you know, the vast majority of others uh, who, who suffered terribly uh, due to the collapse of the, of the textile trade and uh, due to, you know, this, this general process of deindustrialization, which, which I'll mention also is, you know, it, it is a, obviously a contested idea among scholars today still. I mean, there, there are some scholars like Tirthankar Roy who have Push back against this idea of deindustrialization and have actually talked about how the textile industry would, didn't do as badly um, as you know, we made it out to be. So it's you know it's this whole idea of drain and deindustrialization is still very much you know a topic of debate and discussion. Um, but it, at least in his area, you know there, there were many people who agreed with him and said, look, you know, in the late nineteenth century we have a, a period that's marked by terrible famines where tens of millions of people die um, because of you know you know, just starvation or disease and such. And, and this seemed historically out of context with what India had experienced. Uh, yeah, and people, this is know. an important point because, I mean, in our contemporary uh, uh, consciousness uh, throughout the world, I mean, it was uh, this idea of India being a land of, of famines and starvation. Uh, you know, pe- people believe that, that this was normal in Indian history rather than understanding that India was the wealthiest place in the world. And, and this sort of normalization of, of famines in the wealthiest, you know, uh, center of the global economy for thousands of years is really something that needs to be explained and not just, um, you know, taken for granted that, oh, India you know, was poor for so long and now it's becoming rich. Yeah, so so that, that it's, 
to even note that it's abnormal, I think is important. Yeah, I mean, I mean, famine definitely has its 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 place in Indian history. I mean, we have we have lots yeah. of uh, examples, you know, prior to British rule. Uh, but you know, at, at least under the Mughal era, we we know that you know certain remedial measures were taken uh, to deal with famine. You know, the, the 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 officials would intervene and regulate you know markets and 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 you know try to do a little bit at least to 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 remediate uh, um, you know the, the the ill effects of famine. And and under British rule, this seems to change. I mean, first of all, famine mm-hmm. became much more. I mean, again, the the, the period. Between roughly 1850 till around 1905, India saw just you know a terrible number of famines, which again you know killed tens of millions of people. We we don't know the precise numbers. I mean, Mike yeah. Davis has written a book which 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 talks about it in the context of global El Ninos and you know kind of this 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 wave of disasters that hit East Asia and, and South Asia. Uh, but you know a certain amount definitely you know unmistakably has to be chalked up to 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 British indifference or lack of, you know, concrete responses towards famines. Um, so, you know, th- this was something which, which powered uh, the nationalism, not just of people like Nauroji, but, but many others. You know, fa- these terrible famines were examples of just how bad things were getting uh, under colonial mm-hmm. rule. Um, and, you know, to, to, to go to your second question, the, the, the question of princely states, um, oftentimes um, when Indian nationalists looked at uh, where famines were occurring, they tried to see if, you know, things were as bad in, in parts of India that were, you know, under direct British rule vis-a-vis parts that were uh, under these princes. Now, you know, Indian princes ruled over roughly one-fourth of what was considered British India, and they enjoyed relatively autonomous rule. I mean, in the, in the sense that, you know, the, the British could interfere and did interfere if they wanted to, uh, but they enjoyed a, a degree of autonomy that was unthinkable. Uh, in other parts of, of the country. Um, and uh, Nauruji and, and many of his colleagues uh, focused in particular on, on, on groups of these princes who were who thought to be you know, enlightened or forward thinking, uh, who were establishing modern administrations, who were promoting business in, in their areas, trying to establish you know, modern systems of, of, of law and governance. Um, and he really saw this as the way forward, not not necessarily as the way forward for a political structure, but, you know, kind of uh, bubbles where India could Indians could exercise some sort of uh, physical and political and uh, economic control of their own affairs uh, and, and, you know, prove that they could actually manage their uh, own affairs and and debunk the British assumption that, uh, you know, the British were in India because Indians could not uh, carry out you know, their own administration. Uh, so, you know, this in this effort. Nauruji's record and, and the records of many of his colleagues was was mixed. I mean, uh, they worked closely with many princely rulers, such as the, the ruler of Baroda, uh, Maharaja Saiji Rao Gaikwad, uh, who was, you know, a, a great promoter of, of many uh, leading uh, figures like uh, Nauruji and, and, and Ramesh Chandradat and, and numerous other industrialists who, who uh, you know, wanted to uh, kind of, you know, expand uh, Indian business and industrial output. But at the same time, you know, the, inbuilt, the inbuilt flaws in the princely system, you know, you, it was ultimately a system of a, uh, that was autocratic, um, led to some pretty terrible outcomes as well. I mean, when uh, Nauruji served as the prime minister of Baroda just before Saiji Rao came to power um, in, in the early 1870s, and the Gaikwad that preceded um, Saiji Rao was uh, a man called Malha Rao, who was you know, not not uh, you know very advanced uh, politically and uh, you know intellectually in in, a, in any way or form. So I mean, Naroji 
fed, uh, you know, was routinely stymied um, in his efforts to bring about reform in, in, this, in the princely state of Baroda um, in the 1870s. So, you know, there, there were successes and failures. But, you know, towards the end of uh, the, the, the 1880s, Naroji actually came up with statistics that seemed to show that British India was actually poorer on average than princely India, that, you know, places like Baroda or uh, Gondal in, 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 in Saurashtra were actually richer and people were better off. Um, now, whether or not that can, you know, withstand the robustness of statistical data we have uh, today, uh, I'm unable to say, but it's, it's, it seems pretty obvious that at least some of these states uh, were doing better um, than, uh, you know, parts of British India. Yeah, and, and that's a very uh, interesting and important point, just about the, the political structure, too. He was Prime Minister of Baroda, correct? Correct. Yeah, and uh, so what what sort of um, uh, powers uh, did he have as Prime Minister? Do you know? Are, are you familiar with the political structure at the time? So uh, this was one of the more difficult parts of my book to research, because... As far as I can tell, um, the government records in Baroda that existed at the time that Naroji was Diwan or Prime Minister were thrown out. Uh, you know, right. some some absent-minded official probably in the 1970s and 1980s threw out those those records in Baroda, and so we don't have those records surviving. And you know, contemporary newspaper evidence is also quite spotty. So as far as what we could piece together, which was primarily British-produced documents in archives in, in London or in Bombay, uh, and a handful of, of surviving newspaper records, and uh, you know a few surviving letters here and there, um, show a situation where you know the Gaikwad, the, the, the ruling prince, uh, offered Naroji relatively sweeping powers at the init- at the uh, you know beginning of his rule, saying you know he wanted Naroji to modernize the state and, and bring in. Uh, Indian talent, uh, but the reality was very different. I mean, when Naroji tried to exercise these powers, um, he was constantly curtailed by um, the Gaikwad, who wanted to maintain his own kind of uh, uh, group of cronies in power. So, you know, there were some, you know, quite dramatic examples of uh, conflict of, uh, you know, between Naroji's guard and kind of an old guard. Um, and at the same time, Regardless of what powers Naroji had, whether it was, you know, to revise the tax code or uh, revise the land revenue system or uh, sweep away the, the old vestiges of, you know, corrupt legal administration, uh, they were ultimately checked by the British resident, who was the, the highest ranking uh, British uh, authority in Baroda. Uh, and this uh, authority, uh, a man who, uh, called uh, uh, Robert Fair. Um, was not very friendly towards Naroji. He, he thought he was some sort of political interloper and uh, he believed him to be almost you know, anti-British. Uh, and so Fair went out of his ways to curb the powers of Naroji. I mean, he, he tried to prevent Naroji from entering Baroda. He denied mm-hmm. uh, powers. Uh, you know, he denied recognition, uh, official recognition uh, upon Naroji as Diwan. Uh, and that greatly curtailed Naroji's hand in his ability to get reform done. Uh, so, you know, again, this system of princely rule itself was problematic. Uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, it, you know, the person on pa- in, in power at this time, Malarao Gaikwad, uh, was himself someone who was, you know, quite corrupt in his, in his own way. Uh, mm-hmm. in his own mm-hmm. way. Right. So, I mean, so that's interesting that, I mean, because 
surely, I mean, the, the princely states weren't constitutional monarchies, and so so the idea of a prime minister might be more like a, a, a court, like the chief courtly minister. But even in the leg legislative council system that existed in Crown Colony in the 19th century colonies, like, for instance, in Trinidad, where the system actually started, the executive council was basically an advisory council to the governor in any case. So, so, um, so you know, it, it wouldn't be that far from, from the existing systems that, that existed in the world anyway. So to, to judge it from, from today's perspective of what we consider a constitutional uh, uh, monarchy or, or a constitutional democracy would be anachronistic. Because, uh, I mean, throughout the world, there were still... Uh, you know, many places still had to in, introduce their constitutional systems. But but the other part is interesting too that the British resident also curtailed the power. So there were sort of levels of of um, uh, yeah levels of power there that that need to be taken into account. But you know, an, an interesting uh, uh, sort of theme I uh, or, or idea. In, in looking at nationalist movements around the world, that especially in, in today, uh, today's debates looking at, um, you know, I, I suppose um, the, the the cultural aspects of of um, of nationalism and, and 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 people trying to to bring back um, uh, more, let's say, autonomous cultural forms. You know, in those days, in the nineteenth century. For example, the early twentieth century, not only in India, but let's say you know in in Af in South Africa, uh, you know, or or in Af in Africa itself, let's say other parts of Asia, you know, there were these old royal families that were deposed by you know the British or the Dutch or or whomever, and um, and so there you know one sort of. Uh, form of rebellion would be to bring back the old families. And interestingly enough, the first war of Indian independence, which is also known as the, the mutiny of 1857, I mean, they brought back the old Mughal em emperor to to be the head. And, and for about a year, um, they did have control of, of India until, you know, the British took it back. Uh, they were in a bloody... Uh, conflict there but but i find it interesting that, that they brought back the old emperor whereas the later forms of nationalism in the were very modernizing so like in turkey for example where they you know he um uh, where ataturk you know didn't want to you know keep the the ottoman empire but but a, a modern uh, a modern Turkey that that embraced constitutionalism, rights, uh, and and these sorts of things. So um, I, I wonder how much because uh, uh, data by uh, Naroji would have lived through mutiny. I think thirty two years old, if I have my correct uh, calculations correct. So I mean, not a young man. I mean, he would have. You know, being a, a fully conscious uh, adult, uh, and uh, I, I wonder uh, if if these questions, if if you came across these questions about you know uh, looking forward and and, and being a, a reformer of of the new Indian nation, and not just necessarily looking to revive the old, or what sort of balance? Because he actually you know had this experience in the. Princely states. Uh, I, I find that uh, interesting. Can you expand on that? Yeah, um, you know this this kind of recourse to traditional authority uh, had long roots uh, in in the colonial era. I mean, as you said, there, there was no mistake that uh, during the uh, 
the mutiny rebellion um, in 1857 that, that there was recourse to the old Mughal ruler. I mean, even though the, the, the Mughal ruler at this time was basically a, a rather old poet who, who ruled, you know, no perimeter uh, larger than the footprints of his palace. I mean, the, he still was vested in, in, a, in a measure of uh, symbolic authority. Um, and I, I think that the symbolic authority, this um, this kind of idea that, uh, you know, these ruling princes were somehow autonomous or authentic uh, was, you know, a great source of hope and inspiration for very early nationalists. Um, and it, it is an interesting question to think about, uh, you know, whether these early Indian nationalists could have seen, again, these, these royal figures evolving into kind of like some sort of modern uh, statesmanly figures. I mean, a, a few did obviously play a role in, in Indian politics post-independence. So we do have a few examples of, of princely rulers who kind of, you know, they obviously saw the writing on the wall and they, they made a rather successful transition to be uh, democratic representatives. Um, but of course, you know, I think the baggage ultimately weighed them down. And the, there's a reason why, by, you know, Gandhi's generation, uh, Indian nationalists look toward uh, princely rulers in a much more jaundiced fashion. Uh, you know, as as you know, kind of uh, British uh, British cronies, uh, but you know, for a period of time, again, you know, from from the 1880s up through you know the, the very early 1900s, um, many princes were thought of thought of as being allies um, in 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 this uh, in in some sort of nationalist struggle, um, and so you know, even the, the the early Indian National Congress was to a very large degree funded by particular princes. Uh, certainly, Naroji himself. I mean, when he he stands for Parliament in in Great Britain, uh, he has to incur great expenses uh, in order to campaign, um, and many of these expenses were reimbursed by people like uh, uh, the Gaikwad of Baroda, the the ruler of Gondal, um, as well as you know minor princely uh, you know officials and rulers uh, throughout the country. So there, there there was a definite confluence of interests, um, and at the same time, Indian nationalists did play a role in in furthering the interests of certain princely rulers uh, with their disputes that they had uh, with the British government. Uh, so there, there was this delicate balance, but but you're right. I mean, you know, Nauruji's life, since it was so long, it kind of spanned this period where these traditional rulers were seen in a positive light. Uh, and, you know, just to, to, to quickly talk about the, the mutiny rebellion and what Nauruji thought about it, um, the, answer, the, the quick answer is we don't really know. I mean, most of the, 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 the sources... Uh, specific to Naroji's life don't survive, but but it's 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 pretty obvious that Naroji would have been in that group of educated Indians who would not have supported it uh, for various reasons. Okay. They, they, they thought that you know if, if you were a uh, an educated Indian uh, who was educated, by the way, in a in a British institution in uh, or at least a British funded or aligned institution in a place like Bombay, Calcutta, or Madras, uh, you knew that um, ultimately a lot of your interests were tied to British rule. Uh, commercial, educational, uh, even to a certain degree political. Uh, so, you know, the the Indian elites in these cities did not support uh, uh, the Mutiny Rebellion. They saw it as being almost feudal and backward in its nature. But at the same time, they could express a certain degree of sympathy with the idea of, uh, you know, why these people were rebelling. Uh, so, you know, they walked a very fine line. I mean, you know, they could sympathize with mm-hmm. the aspirations being know, embodied in the in the mutiny rebellion, but but you know they, they knew they could not come out in in uh, in support of it because you know first of all I, th- I think many of them realized that this was doomed to failure. Uh, the the mutiny you know was not really a, a very pervasive force in a place like Bombay or or Calcutta. I mean British rule remained quite intact and and certainly it, it remained so in, in the south. 
Um, and, and secondly, I think a lot of the ideas that it represented, you know, kind of a return to Mughal rule, uh, did not sit well with them, um, you know, for various reasons. I mean, the, the dominant mm-hmm. historical narrative that they had been brought up with was that Mughal rule was autocratic and, you know, it was, it was uh, backward looking and, you know, we can question that today, but that's what they thought. So, you know, they weren't terribly excited mm-hmm. by the idea of return to British rule. Right. Very interesting. And, um, and, and even, you know, at that time, I mean, I suppose in, in the phase of Swaraj, we can talk about it more, uh, but, you know, there were, um, you know, the, the nationalism, I mean, it was more European focused than, let's say, Asian or African uh, at the time. And so, and then you had things like dominion status. Because um, I, I know in the, the early uh, debates here in, in the West Indies, too, there, there was and, you know, the differences between things like home rule, dominion status, uh, outright independence, and uh, all these questions that get folded into it. But perhaps we can, we can return to that. Uh, when we more um, uh, when we talk about the the Swaraj phase, because the the phase um, after where he he decides to become uh, an an English MP is it's just amazing. It, 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 so many uh, things to talk about there. Uh, you know, for, it, it, things that would come up in my mind is even you know. The, the whole thing about racial prejudice. So, so what does this say? I mean, it's a they elected him in the nineteenth century. They elected an Indian Parsi. Um, you know that that's incredible. That that's just absolutely incredible. And 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 does it um, uh, you know upend our uh, our conceptions, our own prejudices about um, you know about English people in the 19th century, um, then you know things like even I I wonder you know what what was his English like? Uh, I mean, what, did he have a heavy Indian accent, or was he speaking like a British gentleman, or or somewhere in between? Or uh, that that's interesting, uh, you know, and and how he was seen and. Um, you know, uh, oh, and and just what the campaign would have been like, and as you note in in the biography, it's not the first time an, an Indian tried it, but he was the first one to succeed, and and if I'm not mistaken, the first non-white to actually be um, elected to Parliament. I mean, all these questions surrounding it are fascinating, and if you could enlighten us on that, that would be amazing. Yeah, uh, now Roji's election and his campaigns for Parliament certainly muddies the water around ideas of what we have in terms of, of British racism and, and attitudes towards race in, in the Victorian era. I mean, you're right. On, on the surface, it, it sounds quite amazing. Uh, uh, you know, a British constituency voting an Indian, you know, someone who, you know, grew up speaking a different language, looks different, has a name that people really can't pronounce, uh, electing mm-hmm. him to, you know, to, uh, you know, the British Parliament. And, and it, it certainly created, uh, you know, a kind of a, you know, a, a boomerang effect of racism when, when that happened. But but the fact is that, that there was, you know, a certain ground of anti-racism that, that propelled Naroji as well. So it, it, it really does complicate the story a bit. Um, you, you know, I mean, there, there are a few ways we can try to understand why, uh, how he got elected, rather. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll start off at least with who Naroji was as a person. Um, 
So, you know, now Rochi was educated in the English language growing up. Uh, so he, he was fluent in English. Uh, he, he spoke several languages and, and, you know, his English was, was you know, probably one of his best languages, if not the best. Um, I'm not sure what his accent would have been like, but given that he spent decades living in Great Britain, I'm sure it, it moderated to the, to the point where that, uh, you know, you know, he might not have seemed as a, you know, a British person, but, you know, he did not seem as foreign as many others. I mean, if you remember back in this era, accents would have been, you know, far greater in number and, and, and variance. You know, you could be talking to a Scottish person in London mm-hmm. who, you know, you probably wouldn't, would be able to understand less than, say, uh, you know, Naroji. Just to intervene here, too, I mean, when I went to study in the UK uh, in the late 90s into um, and did my PhD up there, it was the first time living there, and I was amazed at how open they were to accent. They, they would have commercials with Jamaicans speaking the broadest patois and, and they wouldn't put any subtitles or whatever. That sort of diversity and openness to accents really is something remarkable about the UK. That That is actually quite different from the US. But yeah, I, I just said that that is an interesting point you raised. Yeah, yeah, that is very true. I mean, I I, I studied abroad in, in Oxford for, for a little bit and I, I remember I'd occasionally eat lunch with a, an Indian from Glasgow and I wouldn't be able to understand a lot of what he said. I hate to say it, but you know, it's you're, you're right. It's it's something that that I think still <laughs> characterizes a lot of British society. Um, so you know, I mean, he you know, people would remark that Naroji, you know, he he you know, he had a name that people couldn't pronounce, but in many aspects, he looked like a British gentleman. I mean, you know, he as a Parsi, he he didn't, he his skin color was a little bit lighter, uh, you know, for for better or worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of you know how he was received in in, in Great Britain, um, he increasingly would wear more British clothes. I mean, he, he was at first reluctant to give up uh, a lot of Indian garb, but you know eventually he donned a suit and tie and occasionally wore you know a top hat. Uh, so he cult- acculturated to a degree that was acceptable uh, to to those British people who were uh, you know voting and you know were, were listening to him. Um, mm-hmm. and he. Uh, he he showed himself to be very fluent in British political issues. You know, in that era, uh, he had to, uh, you know, not just be concerned about what British high policy was, but what was going on in his constituency. Were the drains being cleaned? What was, you know, uh, you know, the, you know, police, well, how the police were acting in the area? Uh, you know, very, you know, intricate local problems. And, and he seemed up to that challenge. I mean, he actually, uh, you know, got tutorials from, from many uh, British people in the constituency which he campaigned from to learn about local and, issues. And did, did he live in that constituency? So he had an office in that constituency. He, he lived all over the place. I mean, he, he um, you know, he, right. he, he uh, you know, when he, when he was in Parliament, he was uh, probably living in a place in South London, um, but he had an office there. Right. He's, he's, he spent a good chunk of his day I'm, and that constituency, um, in terms of its social class, um, how, how was that? Was it uh, upper class, middle class, working class? Uh, how, what was um, Central Finsbury uh, like in terms of its, its status in that way? So I think that is the, the second ingredient in, in understanding how Naroji got elected. He, he chose his constituencies wisely. Um, you know, the, the first times he, he stood for parliament, he, he stood for, uh, from a constituency called Holborn close by to today's British Museum, mm-hmm. uh, which at that time was quite conservative. And not surprisingly, he did not win. Uh, when he stood again, uh, you know, the constituency he won from in, in the year 1892, 
uh, he stood from central Finsbury, which is, um, you know, to the, to the, the east of St. Pancras Station, um, today kind of south of Angel, uh, today, you know, a, a very desirable area. But, but in that era, uh, Finsbury was very working class. Uh, it had deeply radical roots. You know, it, it was a hotbed of socialism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it had a very large Irish population. Uh, and all of these were ingredients that helped mm-hmm. Narochi win, um, you know, election. Because, you know, first of all, Narochi befriended the Irish to a great degree. I mean, this, this is one of the, you know, one of the, the very interesting uh, stories under the surface of Indian nationalism, uh, the, the the links between uh, Indians and Irish. You know, both both of them disliked British rule and therefore mm-hmm. they got along well. Uh, and so Narochi said, look, you know, I'm an Indian. I, I understand you Irish people, what you're going through in, in Ireland. Uh, I support home rule for Ireland, uh, you know, and, you know, therefore I, I hope you'll vote for me and also support some measure of political rights for India. Uh, anyone? Yeah. And I, as you mentioned in the book, the common history of famine, authoritarianism, you know, with, with Ireland as well. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. A, a lot of uh, links there. I mean, a lot of Irish and Indians could see eye to eye. And uh, again, you know, it's not surprising that. Uh, you know, one or two Irishmen actually come out to to India to serve as presidents of the Indian National Congress. Uh, so, you know, it's 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 a it's a fascinating story, just kind of, kind of how these two uh, colonial subject groups kind of get together and and and, and uh, you know talk to one another and see common ground. So, so I think that's the second ingredient. You know, who the people were who were voting for Naroji, um, and and I think the third ingredient was again, you know, the, the state of, uh, you know semi-democratic or parliamentary politics at this time um, there, in, in Great Britain. I mean, there, there, there was um, a history of uh, British electors voting for people who we could we would classify as being somewhat unusual. Uh, you know, to give you an example, um, you know, a, a few Jewish individuals were uh, elected to, uh, the parli- uh, to, to parliament from places like Greenwich or um, even the city of London. Um, so, you know, and, and you know, nonconformists were, were being elected. Uh, people were kind of pushing the boundaries of, you know, uh, you know, these these categorizations of, you know, who was who was thought to be representative. So an, an Indian was unusual, but there were lots of unusual people offering themselves to be elected at this time, uh, including, as you mentioned, quite a few Indians uh, who had offered themselves uh, to be candidates. Uh, so it, it wasn't completely out of the ordinary. And, you know, the year that Naroji loses election to Parliament in 1895, when he when he when he is voted out of Parliament, a, another Indian is elected in, uh, Manjuji Bhavnagri, an, another Parsi from Bombay who's elected as a Conservative from uh, Bethnal Green, which was a, a working class area in, in East London. So it's it's not you know it 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 evidently wasn't as out of the box as we'd imagine today it to be. So um, in, in the year 1895, when, when Naroji lost um, election to the, the British Parliament, um, another Indian uh, was, was elected, Manjuji Bhavnagri, uh, from uh, the constituency of uh, Bethnal Green, which was a, a working class uh, area of East London. Uh, so, you know, here you have another Indian being elected. And uh, so, so evidently, it wasn't as unusual, uh, you know, or, 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 mm-hmm. or as out of the box as we think of today. I mean, there you know, London was a, you know, a startling, startlingly diverse city, and there were possibilities at this time, kind of, you know, the very beginning of, uh, well, you know, the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, where new possibilities were, were being tested and tried. That's quite amazing, isn't it? And and also, the, the party history, I think, is, is interesting. He was there with the Liberal Party, and... Um, 
So that and the Liberal Party doesn't exist. I mean, the Lib Dems are are not exactly the same as as the old Liberals. The Liberals were so strong in the nineteenth century, uh, and and the Labour Party had not yet been formed. Uh, so that that's interesting. I, and in sort of my reassessment of of the Liberal Party, I mean, I think we have a huge intellectual influence and policy influence on Britain that we don't understand and in terms of free trade and, uh, and whatnot. But, um, yeah, it, 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 is, is there anything you'd like to, um, you know, note about, you know, his choice of party and, and the Liberal Party and, and maybe what the Liberal Party's view of empire, uh, etc. was? Absolutely, yeah. So if, if you were in, in India, again, in, in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, uh, and if you were more nationalist-minded, there was no question that you were affiliated to the Liberal Party. Uh, you know, the, the, the Indian National Congress tried at first to issue uh, a direct uh, link to one political party over the other in Great Britain. They, 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 they tried to remain somewhat neutral because, again, they needed as many friends as possible. Um, but, you know, over a course of time, it, 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 it was given that, you know, the natural party which, which you'd gravitate towards was the Liberal Party. Uh, because the, the liberals uh, had been a little receptive, at least, uh, to mm-hmm. some form of political reform. I mean, you had people like John Bright uh, in the party who had spoken quite forcefully in, 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 in the sense of some you know, real need for political reform in, in India. Uh, Gladstone, at times, could be uh, quite condemnatory of uh, imperialist policies around the world and also quite open uh, to the possibilities for some sort of reform in India. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, the choice of viceroys that were, were, was, were sent out to India by both parties, um, the British, uh, you know, sent, uh, sorry, the Liberals sent, uh, you know, a person like Lord Ripon uh, as uh, a viceroy in, in, the, in the very early 1880s, uh, who was, you know, extremely reformist by those, by those times, by the standards of those times. And so that left a very positive impression uh, amongst uh, you know early Indian nationalists of the Liberal Party. Now, at the same time, many Indians understood the limits of just how far the Liberals would go. Um, and you know, certainly after the Liberals split over the question of Home Rule, and they see people like Chamberlain becoming um, you know much more imperialistic in, in their in their overtures, they realized that you could be both liberal and you know arch imperialist at the same time. Um, and so, you know, for that reason, it's, it's no mistake that people like Naroji eventually start to gravitate more and more to uh, this emerging coalition of people who uh, become, you know, associated with, with, with labor, you know, the, the very beginnings of, of the Labour Party, people like John Burns and such, uh, as well as socialists, people like Henry Hinman. And when he was elected uh, in the parliament, the liberals did not form government. They were in opposition, correct? So in 1892, when he was elected, no, they they, they were they, they came to power. Uh, so you know, oh, okay. So he was a okay. I I was under the impression that it was the Conservatives who were in power. So so he was a an MP uh, for the, with the governing party, but uh, but he didn't have a portfolio, obviously. So he was a backbencher of the ruling party. In um, uh, okay, so that that's interesting, and and I suppose uh, in terms of you know. His his disappointment uh, with you know with that position it, it would have been exciting that they were in government, but then his his program was kind of thwarted, put on the back burner. Nobody much cared about it, and then he became 
sort of radicalized, I suppose, especially after he lost it. Is that, uh, is that a correct understanding? And can you expand on that? Yes. Nauruji's relations with the Liberal Party definitely soured while he was in, in Parliament. Uh, you know, he, he stored great hope on the Liberals to pass certain reforms, like reform of the, the civil service, uh, thereby allowing Indians to, to, you know, more easily enter the civil service. Um, and, you know, it, it's funny, the, the, the first uh, defeat of, of the Liberal government uh, in, uh, that was in power at the time uh, actually came from Naroji's hand. Uh, you know, he, he um, you know, passes this resolution in the Commons over the objection of his own party uh, to allow mm. form of Indian civil service reform. Uh, and that immediately causes bad blood with many Liberal Party members. Um, and right. bad blood deepens, I think, as more and more of his agenda is thwarted, uh, to the point that, you know, towards, you know, his last years in Parliament, 1893, 1894, and the beginning of 1895, uh, he's actually calling out people like Gladstone and saying, look, you know, you are supposed to be, uh, you know, the representative uh, standing for the rights of, of those who have been oppressed. And, and yet look at Indians, you know, you have 300 million people who are basically in chains uh, you know, at the end of your political career, you could you could really do something. What will you do? Um, so, you know, again, we don't have much information, unfortunately, of what Gladstone thought of such comments. But uh, Naroji himself, at least, expressed uh, grave disappointment. Right, right. And then, so that takes us into the final phase of of Naroji's life, as as you have divided it, um, the radicalization phase, the Swaraj phase. Um, can you expand a bit more on that? That that really, um, you know, leads up to the kind of anti-colonial third world nationalism uh, theme that's really part of this series in in many many direct explicit ways with with all the links he was making. Um, yeah, so uh, please expand on that. Sure. So the years from eighteen ninety five onward till you know, say maybe. Um, you know, the, the very early 20th century uh, really did act in many ways as a catalyst on Indian nationalism. And, and there, were a few re- there were a few reasons. Uh, firstly, um, a terrible famine uh, started, you know, started in parts of Western and Northern India in 1895. Uh, the next year, uh, plague uh, came to Bombay and, and spread throughout other parts of Western India from that point onwards. So, you know, just as today we're living through an epidemic uh, in, in 1896, 1897, uh, you know, a, a terrible epidemic, which 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 really you know had dramatic political and economic consequences for India, uh, spread throughout the country. Um, and and the third factor was uh, the conservative government that came into power in, in Great Britain. Uh, and the conservatives came back uh, into power with with you know an intention to really double down on on imperialist policies. Uh, you know, they sent people like uh, Lord Curzon out as viceroy. Um, they they really kind of blocked any attempt at political reform in India. And then they, you know, they, they made, uh, you know, the, the, the prospects for hope of early Indian nationalists really dissipate. Uh, you know, it, it was a, a terrible period uh, from the standpoint of, of being an Indian nationalist. If you read letters of people like Gokhale or Naroji or uh, Ranade at this time, it, it, you, can, you can sense their desperation. It, it really seems that all their hopes for reform have, have been dashed to pieces. Um, and what this understandably led to was a moment of great radicalization across the board. Uh, it manifested itself in different ways. I mean, people like Bal Gangadhar Tilak uh, in, in Pune uh, 
uh, started to develop a more radical form of nationalism. And, you know, you, you start to see uh, assassinations of a few people uh, connected with the British government in, in places like Pune uh, at this time. Um, now, Roji radicalizes, but radicalizes in, in a nonviolent way. Uh, he's, he's worried that, um, you know, because of all these terrible things going on in India, uh, India is on the cusp of, of another uh, rebellion, like what happened in 1857. And he wants to avoid that happening. And he wants to avoid, uh, you know, a terrible outbreak of violence happening in the country. Uh, and so he's, he, he basically, te- you know, starts saying to the British, look, if you don't do anything now, uh, your rule is going to be ended by violence. And, you know, you'll be, you know, the, the British Empire will, will you know, will, will, will dissipate. So, I mean, it's in your self-interest to, to grant us political reform. Um, and he works with, you know, say the socialists, a lot of labor rights, and again with the Irish, uh, to really uh, foment a much more radical political position. And that position was self-government. Now, at the beginning, uh, when he starts talking about self-government around the year 1903, uh, he says very specifically it's self-government under, quote, unquote, British paramountcy. Uh, so, you know, the British are in charge uh, in his in his conception to the same degree that they're in charge uh, in, say, Canada or Australia um, or uh, New, New Zealand. He's, he's not thinking like the crown colonies like Jamaica or Trinidad. I mean, he's thinking of kind of, a, I guess, a, a step further. Um, but by and large, Indians would be in charge of everything. I mean, he actually, you know, if you look at what, you know, documents he drafts at this time, he, he drafts a, a plan where, you know, the viceroy, uh, the Indian the viceroy is there as a British appointed official, uh, but everyone else with any political power is Indian. And over time, you know, that, that position of viceroy could be questioned. Um, but, you know, between 1903 and 1906, he even starts to question this assumption. And, um, you know, that, that last political speech that he gives to the, the, the Congress in Calcutta, uh, he says very deliberately that he is in favor of self-government um, either as what exists in a place like Canada or Australia or as what exists in Great Britain. So in, in, in the British context, self-government is, you know, unquestioning. You know, there, there, there is no question of some sort of, uh, you know, overarching layer of colonialism, no, no matter how thin it was, you could be a self-governing nation. So he kind of left that as an open question mark. Uh, and that, again, you know, really kind of uh, fed directly into the hopes of radicals like Tilak or Bipin Chandrapal, uh, Lala Lajpat Rai, and others who are arguing for, uh, you know, something more in the direction of outright independence and self-rule rather than some sort of dominion status or some, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, improved uh, version of colonial rule for India. Yes, and, and you know that that's important. It's important for us to to think back and also to reflect on today too. That it's, it's not just a, a binary uh, notion of let's say nationalism and anti-imperialism. I mean, as you noted, you know, you, you could have you know staunch imperialists from the liberal side, right? So you could be a liberal imperialist as there are liberal imperialists today. Um, you know, there, there was dominion status or home rule, which were the, and even the socialists, like, like for instance, George Orwell, right up to, you know, to the mid-20th century, you know, he didn't advocate independence for India. Um, instead, he uh, advocated, you know, as many socialists did, for a reorganization of the British Empire along socialist lines, because he thought that independence would actually, you know, mean impoverishment, and um, and that uh, if the empire was more of a, a socialist, uh, egalitarian empire, that would be much better. And, and to some extent, uh, 
you know, places like, you know, in the Caribbean where, where, where I am, um, you know, we have Martinique and Guadeloupe, which are part of, of France now. Um, they didn't become independent. And, and so that, and people like M.A. Césaire, who was a communist, I mean, he supported that actually, as opposed to independence. And even someone like Toussaint Louverture in the 19th century, he didn't want Haiti to be independent from France, but to have autonomy. So you have all these, all these different types and, and this kind of a continuum. And, um, and so, so the idea of, of Swaraj, now, so let, let's try to put Swaraj in that sort of context of, of the um, continuum. And, and, and did uh, Naroji invent the term, or was it used before? It, it was definitely used before. I mean, the person who popularized the term Swaraj was Bal Gangadhar Tilak. Uh, and Tilak himself reached back further in history uh, to the, the, you know, the, the historical character of Shivaji, the, the Maratha ruler uh, who fought mm-hmm. against, uh, against Mughal rule, uh, who had, you know, had this idea of Swarajya, um, you know, uh, as his kind of his campaign. So, you know, the idea wasn't his, the word wasn't his, but uh, but he he made it the official policy of the Congress, which in itself was was extremely significant. Right, and um, and and in terms of of the link now, because okay, so so, so uh, as you said, I mean, when the Indian National Congress was formed, it, it had a kind of a reformist and. In, in some ways, I, you know, well, liberal. I, I don't know if, if, if that meant it was like aligned with the liberal party policy so much, but from our, you know, sense of the word liberal, you know, um, gradualist, you know, uh, as opposed to independent seeking. And Naroji, if I understand you correctly, and his call for Swaraj really sort of pushed uh, the national Indian National Congress much more in a radical independence type direction, and and was this um, and how how was this related to his you know, his connection with say things like you know independence movements around the world that we did speak about Ireland, but then you know you had things like the, the Pan Africanist uh, Congress and um, other anti colonial nationalist movements because I, I suppose at that time. The biggest nationalist movements would have been in Europe and not so much in Asia, Africa, or the Caribbean. But but there was a kind of stirring, so that's what and, and Indian nationalism became globally important uh, for the whole uh, anti-colonial move, movement after, especially after independence came in '47, and and it sort of set the ball rolling. But yeah, if if you could put it, uh, you know, that nationalism that. Um, Naroji pioneered or, or pushed the Congress towards in its global context, uh, that would be uh, important for us. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, Naroji was, was one of the characters who, who helped move the Congress towards, um, you know, a position of, of advocating independence rather than, say, you know, other um, you know, other political alternatives, which, 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 which we talked about. But, you know, obviously he was, he was one amongst many. I mean, uh, many others had much more radical ideas than him at the time, especially people like Tilak. And, you know, Tilak would occasionally criticize Naroji and say, you know, we, re- we really wish, you know, you'd, you'd adopt more of our ideas. So, you know, I, I don't want to overestimate Naroji's contribution, but he, he certainly, I think, played a role, at least at that juncture, the early 20th century of, of moving the Congress uh, in a direction where something, you know, something like 
you know, self-government, whether it was dominion status or independence, was now really what people were talking about, because that was not what people were talking about at the very beginning. Uh, the Congress had always been quite a, a, a big tent. And, uh, you know, when Naroji gives this last speech of his life and talks about uh, Swaraj, uh, he causes a great degree of disappointment and worry and trepidation amongst moderate nationalists who think that uh, he's gone too far. Uh, and that this idea was just not sustainable, and and something like self government for India was was potentially you know a hundred years away, centuries away, uh, because Indians weren't prepared. And um, Naroji disagreed with that line of thought. He said, you know, how can you say we're not prepared? I mean, you know, will you will you uh, you know not teach a man how to swim just because he can't swim? I mean, he actually you know used analogies like that to to, to talk about how that idea was quite bogus. Um, now, when we turn to how his ideas and, and the ideas of others in India were uh, relevant for in, in other uh, you know, nationalist contexts, uh, yes, they were, they were, I think, were, were, were very uh, influential. I mean, one thing I tried to do was trace the receptivity of Naroji's 1906 Congress speech uh, around the world. Uh, and I, find it, I, I found it being commented upon uh, by a variety of people. I mean, you know, first of all, Gandhi in South Africa talks about it. Uh, in uh, the United States, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, the, 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 the famous African-American intellectual, uh, uses it as an example of, uh, you know, non-white people asserting their political rights and, you know, uh, talking about, uh, you know, some form of self-rule for, the, for their own selves. Uh, so, you know, even in the African-American context, ideas like this were having resonance. Um, you know, elsewhere around the world, I mean, I, I know, for example, people like uh, Sukarno in Indonesia uh, talked about how people like Naroji, along with others like Tilak and, and Nehru and Gandhi, of course, uh, you know, people in Indonesia were, were, were following them and, and, you know, using them as kind of inspiration and examples in, the, in, the, in their own struggle against Dutch rule. Uh, so I think it had great resonance, um, you know, I, I, and I, I'm sure there's a lot more that I haven't uncovered as yet about how. Uh, you know, say, Naroji's ideas specifically uh, were influential around the world. I mean, certainly the drain theory has a very long provenance. I mean, you know, uh, again, people like Kwame Nkrumah in, in Ghana talk about the drain, uh, you know, as late as the 1960s uh, in, uh, you know, in, in Western Africa. Um, and, you know, this, this fits into something more broadly, which I think you were alluding to also, which was uh, the role that India played in, in galvanizing uh, anti-colonialism around the world. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, we're starting to see some scholarship on that now. Uh, I think there's a lot more to be written about that. Yeah, absolutely. You, you mentioned Eric Williams, for example, in, in right. your conclusion, who was our first um, prime minister here in Trinidad and Tobago. And he always referred to Nehru. I mean, they, they always looked at, you know, the Indian nationalist movement as, you know, especially you know, all the British colonies would have looked at uh, Indian independence as the model, as the example, as something to, to say, well, look, they became independent and um, we should, you know, why can't we also become independent as well? And, you know, Nkrumah, so, so people, um, and, and then, you know, um, the type of nationalism that Nehru uh, uh, kind of pioneered was this was this kind of hybrid type, you know. Where, so, you know, he had the you know the respect of the British and you know had this beautiful accent and was scholarly. So, so all these educated middle class type um, uh, nationalists in in the British 
empire, uh, you know, could really look up to, up to that, you know. So it had that sort of middle class and, and almost elite appeal as well as the kind of radical um, lower class appeal, which later on, um, you know, unraveled in, in, in many of the kind of uh, post, you know, independence uh, movements and dissatisfactions. And, but, but, it, but it is very interesting, the whole complex of Indian nationalism and, and how it uh, inspired, I mean, Marcus Garvey and, and, and right. so forth. But um, if, if I was um, to, uh, to ask you about uh, na- nationalism today, and I suppose, do you think um, Naroji's nationalism uh, is different from the nationalisms today? And, and I suppose, you know, nationalisms always have, have different you know iterations and and uh, you know kind of where it fit in the in the spectrum of nationalisms of his own day, and then I suppose if if we want to reflect on on nationalism today, like in India, you have you know a, a different type of nationalism under the BJP uh, as opposed to the to the Congress, and then whether Congress's nationalism as as it's understood today is the same thing as Naroji's nationalism. Uh, what are your reflections on that? So my my initial reaction, my initial reflex, I should say, to you know when 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 you think of nationalism today in India versus say the nationalism of of Nauruji or or indeed of Gandhi or, or Nehru is that 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 they're, they're polar opposites, right? That uh, you know the, the nationalism of of you know Gandhi, Nehru, Nauruji, and, and countless under other individuals who who led the uh, you know kind of the nationalist movement in India was uh, you know was not narrow-minded in the sense that current-day nationalism is, uh, and that it could be internationalist, it could be very expansive. It was, you know, it, it was accommodating, um, and uh, you know, it 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 you know did not have the same kind of antagonistic and kind of uh, blunt, violent edge of the nationalisms that we're seeing today. But I will contextualize my remarks by saying that obviously those votaries of nationalism today do not see it that way, right? I mean they. You know, I, I think if you if you are a supporter of Modi today, you see some commonalities between the nationalism of yesterday and the nationalism of today. And I do see that coming out occasionally here and there. I mean, to give you one example, um, a few months ago, uh, the, the Indian government you know, under uh, Prime Minister Modi came out with this uh, this program for self-reliance, economic self-reliance, where, you know, India would start to, uh, you know, produce more of its own goods uh, be less reliant, especially on, on countries like China. Um, and, you know, this deliberately hawked back to this, this idea of Swadeshi in, in, in Indian nationalism, uh, where, you know, Indian nationalists boycotted British goods uh, and, you know, were trying to make the economy self-reliant and self-sustaining. And, and this was an idea that, that animated, uh, you know, Nehruvian economic policy. It, it animated Indian economic policy through the 1980s. Uh, so you know, it, it ha- there are certain consonants uh, between the, the nationalism of yesterday and today. Um, obviously, I abhor uh, you know the, the the you know particularism, the you know the, the kind of ra- racism and, and uh, religious bias that's that's rooted in the nationalism of today. Um, and I, I I think people like Naroji and Gandhi and, and Nehru and again countless others would would similarly abhor that uh, the, that how these ideas are being twisted and turned today. Um, and, you know, I guess, you know, the, we need to kind of go back to their ideas in order to respond. 
you know, Gandhi is, is, it has always been a, a powerful system, symbol of resistance uh, in India. And you've started, you've started to see images of Gandhi as well as others like Ambedkar uh, pop up at, you know, gov- at anti-government rallies or, or rallies that have kind of, you know, uh, protested uh, policies of this government, like the Citizenship Amendment Act earlier this year. Uh, so I, I think the story is complex. I mean, it's I'd like to say that they're diametrically opposed, uh, but you know, again, those votaries of today's nationalism don't see it that way, uh, and we need to take that into. Yeah, absolutely. I I agree. I mean, um, you know, there, there's always been a, a a spectrum, as I said, a continuum and a gamut. It's it's, it's never been one thing, and I mean, I, I suppose the idea of um, of the the cultural nationalism uh, there's the economic nationalism there's I suppose political nationalism economic nationalism there might be other things as well but um, but yeah and and I I suppose um, on those three different dimensions they they can be uh, you know various permutations and and you you might have some surprising combinations and but um and, and, and so in this discussion of nationalism, I, I find, and one of the things that, you know, motivated the series is that I, th- I think the discussion of nationalism is very flat in um, North America in, in, and Europe um, because of their reaction to, you know, say, Donald Trump, for example, and, and you know, other um, kind of nationalist movements in Europe and anti-immigrant movements and so forth. Um, do you, what, what, what's your reflections on, on the way nationalism has been, I, I think, demonized in, you know, standard uh, academic discourse in Europe and, and the United States? Do you have any reflections? Yeah, I mean, you know, in nationalism is, I think, today, you know, it, it carries kind of, you know, a, a very negative connotation, at least, at least in intellectual circles today. Uh, the one reason why I like studying Indian nationalism is because it really kind of, uh, you know, contradicts a lot of what our central feelings are about nationalism in general. I mean, you know, when we think about nationalism in the, you know, the, the traditional European context, whether it was, you know, the Italian nationalism or, uh, you know, the German nationalism um, of the 1800s, you know, it's, it's it ultimately is, you know, I mean, obviously liberalism is at its core, but uh, you know, there's there's kind of a, a look inward towards one's traditions and cultures, and Indian nationalism certainly had that component. Uh, but like everything in India, it, it was much more complex than that. Uh, so you know, Indian nationalism was as much about India in many ways as it was about other parts of the world that were struggling for some form of emancipation. Um, and again, this is reflected in the alliances that Naroji makes in his career. I mean, he reaches out to the Irish, he reaches out to African-Americans, to other blacks living in, in London uh, from, say, the Caribbean or, or even some Africans who had uh, come from uh, British West Africa. Uh, he reaches mm-hmm. out to women uh, who are campaigning for the vote. So th- there's, there's kind of this emancipatory quality uh, in Indian nationalism, which, you know, Naroji helps pioneer uh, and remains the, the center point of Indian nationalism throughout uh, Nehruvian internationalism. I mean, again, Nehru you know, it's incredible what Nehru did. I mean, he took a poor, recently independent country that's struggling to make men ends meet, and he makes it a global player. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's 
remarkable what he does in, in, in many in many cases. Um, so uh, you, you know that's the thing about Indian nationalism that I, I find very dynamic. It's it's very outward looking. Uh, again, it's it's oftentimes contradictory. I mean, as I was talking about you separately through email, there there were. Uh, you know, great examples of how Indian nationalism was inflected by racism, whether it was true towards Africans or myopic myopic views of, you know, where India stood in terms of kind of like a, a hierarchy of civilizations. And, and even people like Naroji were, were guilty of that. I mean, he, he saw Indians as being somehow civilizationally superior to, to say, uh, people in Africa, uh, especially South Africa. Uh, but at the same time, that bias and, and you know, certain degree of you know discriminatory or, or, or racist attitudes were greatly countered by you know a very capacious internationalism uh, that wasn't present in many other forms of nationalism then or or even today. Uh, you know, there was no build the wall <laughs> component in in Indian nationalism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I I think that that's very uh, important, and, and you know, even today in, in today's nationalism, which is um, looked down upon uh, by the left, and there's a huge anti. I'm, okay, if I say anti-imperialist, it, it it's probably not technically correct, but but it's certainly tied to the whole history of anti-imperialism, the, the anti-globalist. Uh, discourse in the nationalist movements, even in Europe and, you know, uh, under Trump and so forth. It has a lot of resonance with, you know, the spirit of Bandung, the anti-colonial nationalism, the, you know, uh, against, you know, the, um, uh, you know, financial imperialism, um, the, uh, the, the the gutting the deindustrialization oh I I just hear echoes you know very very strong echoes with with these anti-imperialist movements uh, throughout history and the anti-colonialist movements um, I don't know if if you uh, see those parallels as well so you're, you're talking about parallels between say even a nationalism contemporary and the- nationalism today yeah you know like the, the movements that are, are are you know the the anti-globalist right so so yeah. Today yeah. it's it's called anti globalism, but to me that it's just pretty much the same thing as anti imperialism. Yeah, I don't know your reflections on that. Yeah, I, I can see some resonance. I mean, you know, I I lived and and, and worked in South Carolina uh, for five years, which of course is you know one of the heartlands of of, of, of Trump country, uh, and so you know uh, you know since I was at a university, I was in a, in a liberal bubble, but whenever I stepped outside of that bubble. Uh, you encounter Trump supporters and very vocal Trump supporters. And, you know, you can understand where they're coming from. I mean, they've seen their local economy get devastated. Um, They see a a very great disparity between the rich and the poor and, uh, you know, parts of the country that are wealthy and not wealthy. And you're right. I mean, in many ways, this is very similar to the same arguments that, say, nationalists around uh, the colonial world were were making, right? A a drain of wealth, uh, imbalance of... Mm -hmm. uh, of financial resources, the rich and the poor, people being you know unfairly targeted, and uh, you know ways of life lives being destroyed. So yeah, there, I, I do see some resonance uh, between you know what we have today and uh, you know what what we study <laughs> you know from two hundred years ago, a hundred years ago. It it might be uncomfortable to realize that connection, but but it it is there. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, uh, 
So, well, I, I've kept you, you know, long enough on, on this interview. So, but let me, uh, in, in wrapping up, um, what would you say is, uh, is important for us today to think uh, bo- both about uh, Naoroji and, you know, and, and why it's important today uh, for us to, you know, understand him? And then I suppose he, because the series is about um, third world nationalism, uh, then also you know um, you know the relevance of his nationalism and third world nationalism today. Um, what would be your concluding remarks there? So I, I think one very uh, salient point of Naroji's relevance uh, has been brought to light in, in terms of the the anti-racist protests we've seen around the world uh, since since June of this year. Um, and Naroji moved in anti-racist circles in, in Victorian Britain 100, 150 years ago, 120 years ago, uh, and he contributed to those circles as well. I mean, indeed, his election to parliament in 1892 was to a very large degree uh, the result of anti-racist camping uh, and, you know, talking about how, how Britons and Indians were, were not that different after all uh, and had the same kind of political aspirations and, you know, ind- indeed social aspirations as well. Uh, so, you know, I think Naroji is important at this moment just as an example of, of, of a very early anti-racist pioneer with, you know, with, with all his flaws. I mean, anti-racism meant a different thing back then than, than it does today. Uh, but just the elements of how Naroji was a pioneering figure in so many domains, whether it was Indian nationalism or whether it was, uh, you know, the sphere of kind of minority politics in in Great Britain, the, the roots of the Asian community, uh, or kind of like this transnational uh, anti-colonialism that's built up throughout the 20th century. He, he's there at the begin- beginning in, in all of these spheres. Uh, and you mm-hmm. see him in many other spheres as well, uh, you know, discussions on, uh, you know, the economy, you know, economy, socialism. Yep. Uh, so, I mean, he's, he's there at the beginning. And so, you know, one reason why I think he's such an interesting character to study is, uh, you know, He's from a part of the world that, you know, was kind of cut off from a lot of these discussions, and yet he is, he's helping form them uh, in, 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 in so many different and, and unique ways. So, I mean, that's where I really think, you know, Naroji continues to have relevance uh, in, you know, the Indian context, the British context, and indeed in a, in a global context. I'll just say in conclusion, you know, when, when we think about third world nationalism today or, or nationalism in general today, uh, someone like Naroji, again, shows us how nationalism does not have to be uh, xenophobic. Uh, it doesn't need to be just inward looking. Uh, there's a, an outward and, and global component uh, as well, based on kind of this idea of emancipatory politics, that your rights are as equal as my rights, and you know it should not be monopolized by one power. Uh, so I think that's really what's relevant today. I mean, if we want to bring liberalism back into the discussion of nationalism, uh, Naroji is a great example of, of how that worked and how that coexisted and how Indian nationalism was able to get in communication with Irish nationalism, you know, things like European socialism uh, and, you know, other groups like African-Americans as well uh, without, you know, dissipating itself from key components of nationalism, uh, you know, and, and stretching itself too thin. Well, I know you've just finished your book, but uh, I and you'll be promoting it now. But are, are there any other projects that you're working on at present? Or, you know, do you have a website that our listeners um, can, you know, check out your your work? Sure. Uh, so my website is, is dinyarpatel.com. 
uh, which which has at the moment mostly just you know my previous writing and, and information on the current book. Uh, but the, the next project I'm, I'm looking at uh, uh, is, you know, this whole moment of liberal nationalism in India, uh, not mm. just Naroji in, 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 in you know, his, his own career, but, but looking at Indian nationalism before Gandhi um, and different components of it. Uh, and I, I kind of want to expand on these ideas of kind of global connections or uh, ideas that Indians developed about representation, economic rights. Um, how the Congress developed to kind of, uh, you know, not just champion rather narrow rights, but kind of a more, you know, was a more expansive experiment in, you know, democratic politics uh, before Gandhi. I mean, you know, we, we know a lot about Gandhi. We know a lot about the Congress during the era of Gandhi and Nehru, but early Indian nationalism often gets left behind and gets thought of as kind of, uh, you know, a moment that failed. It was it was too narrow. It didn't really work that well. It was kind of boring and unresonant. Um, and I kind of disagree with that whole idea. I, I think Indian nationalism is, is very much a component of uh, the the broader story of of how Indian nationalism developed. In in many ways, it's it's foundational. Um, and uh, a lot of the liberal foundation of the Indian state, which has come under attack recently, uh, can be, you know, derived back to this era. Uh, so when we think of ideas like, you know, a free press or democratic politics or uh, a judiciary that's meant to be accountable or, uh, you know, various political reforms, these were all ideas that were developed in, in early Indian nationalism. Wow, that, that sounds like a very uh, interesting and important project. I look forward to that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for this interview. It's been very informative and enjoyable. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Kirk. It's been a pleasure to be on this podcast as well. Once again, the book is Naroji, Pioneer of Indian Nationalism, published by Harvard University Press in 2020. And we've been speaking to its author, Dinya Patel. Thanks also to you, our listeners. Make sure you sign up for our notifications so you don't miss any new interviews on this channel in future. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Thank you.